Dr. Monica Argerwal, who is a cardiologist. How are you doing today? Hi there. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you for taking time out of your evening to spend with us. And I am very excited to hear your story. And I think you're going to be very inspirational to a lot of people listening. Could you give us a little background as to maybe why you chose medicine and then how you went on to develop rheumatoid arthritis and, and that recovery from that, please? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I uh, went into cardiology because I like taking care of, or I used to think I used to like taking care of sort of patients that are the sickest and um, coming in and sort of taking care of um, uh, people um, that are very, very sick and also then also being part of a field where you can very quickly reverse that. And that's a gratifying thing. If a patient has a heart attack, you can go in and put a stent in. Um, and so that was always sort of a, a gratifying thing about cardiology. Cardiology is a tricky field because it's a lot of men, uh, very few women uh, work a lot of hours. Uh, and um, I definitely went from being um, from working, from getting a little bit disenchanted with medicine for sure, where I ended up realizing that I was writing a lot of prescriptions. And uh, admittedly, I wrote a lot of Lipitor prescriptions and sort of what, you know, the conversation wasn't about sort of getting healthier as much as we'd say stuff like, oh, let, you know, you need to eat better. Um, but we didn't talk so much, and most physicians don't talk very much about sort of getting healthier. Um, and sort of how to get healthier. Well, you know, not just saying to eat better and to walk more, but to actually give people practical tips on how to. Um, so I did an integrated medicine fellowship with uh, Andy Weil at University of Arizona, which was a really neat during my fellowship, which helped me a lot sort of to sort of see what other opportunity, what other things are out there and how other ways you can treat patients. Uh, and I'm Indian by background, so I'm very interested in spices and sort of had a lot of sort of the background to start going down an integrative path. Um, about four, I guess, five years ago, I was sort of in a high-intensity practice. I had three children under four years old, and I, I just had to have my third. And I remember there was a time that I had a child uh, attached um, to the breast, one attached, one I was carrying, and one uh, that was attached to my leg because they didn't want to be neglected. And I remember you know, t also being on the phone and having those same crazy moments where I'd be on the phone with the hospital as I'm running around caring after three kids. And so what I sacrificed was I worked a lot and I was always felt guilty. Uh, and a lot of women and a lot of people in general can relate to this where you feel guilty when you're at work because you feel guilty that your kids are at home and you're not with them. And then when you're at um when you're at home, you feel guilty because you're not doing as good of a job as a doctor. Uh, so I spent a lot of time feeling that anxiety and guilt. So what I sacrificed was my sleep. I sacrificed um, my health. Um, so after I, um, I was stressed all the time, but I continued to do everything and sort of wanted to want, be the one to bake the cupcakes for my daughter's birthday and make the uh, puree, the sweet potato for their baby, the meals. And I also sort of make sure I made the phone calls to every patient that needed to be addressed. And so that balance uh, was very challenging for me. And I think the need to do everything and do everything well is a complicated issue and perhaps a conversation for another day. But because of that, I think that my stress levels were very high. I was sleeping very little. And after my uh, third child, I uh, started getting this migratory pain in my joints. 
started out with a finger, then it moved to a knee, then it moved to a shoulder. Um, I remember that I felt like there was ice or glass cutting my feet, and I changed my shoes uh, three times in two weeks because I insisted that the problem was my shoes and not that my feet had ice in them or glass cutting them. And so after a couple of weeks of feeling terrible and having this migratory pain, I did what any good physician does. I treated myself um, without going to see a physician and thought I had Lyme disease. So I started myself on antibiotics and I didn't get better. I remember getting angry with baby uh, clothes companies and decided I was going to write letters to every clothes company because I couldn't clasp their, the baby's clothes. They always, those baby clothes have all those snaps on them and I couldn't do the snaps. And uh, I remember thinking that the problem was the clothes and not me. And then I remember a moment where it really all came to a head, which was uh, when the baby was probably like four months old. And so uh, I remember hobbling down the stairs to around 4.30 in the morning or 5 in the morning to make their lunches and get them ready and pump uh, and pump um, so that the baby would have milk for the day. And I remember uh, the baby started crying and I wanted to go up and get her before she woke up my other two children. And uh, I, I tried to run up the stairs, but I, I couldn't get up and I couldn't get up the stairs and I had to crawl up those stairs uh, that day and I got to the top of the stairs and got to the crib but I couldn't get the baby out of the crib and I remember my husband coming to get me because he kept hearing the baby crying but he knew I was up and he found me at the bottom of the crib sitting there crying because I couldn't lift the baby out of the crib so I went to see uh, a good a good rheumatologist who told me I had advanced rheumatoid arthritis, that I was very sick, that I my lab tests were markedly abnormal, and that I needed to get on high-dose therapy Im immediately. I needed to stop nursing my baby because all of the medicines go through the breast milk. Uh, so I stopped nursing my baby after four and a half or five months because I was told I had to. And you know, it's okay for any woman to make that choice to not nurse or nurse, but to have that choice taken away from you when you want to nurse is very, very difficult. So within a week, I stopped nursing. And any woman who's nursed the baby knows how difficult that must have been. And every time that baby cried, I had to walk away. So, you know, I went through a very bitter time. I was very angry. Uh, I was angry that I'd had a third child. I was bitter and mad at my third kid blaming her for why I got sick. It was a very dark time. And, you know, I got better. Uh, all the medicines worked, but my hair fell out. I had a metallic taste in my mouth all the time. I lost a lot of weight. And I had this, I really started understanding what it was to be a patient. And people say that all the time. They understand what it means to be a patient. But when you are the doctor and you tell somebody that the prescription medicine has a side effect, say it only happens one in a thousand, don't worry about it. It's gonna be fine. That's what I might say when I have a doctor's hat on, but when you're the patient, I truly started understanding that the patient thinks that they're going to be that one in a thousand. So when I took my medications, I often thought I'd wake up in the morning with my liver failed or worse. So I think I learned so much from this experience where I 
went through a very dark time and I, um, but I, as I started getting better and, but being on these medications, I remember I went back to life as it was before. And, uh, I remember meeting a woman who was a nutritionist and, uh, she was a nutrition health coach actually. And she wanted to come to one of my community fairs. So she came to the fair and she said, look, you know, I want to help you with this fair. And, um, you know, we were pretty full up and I wasn't really quite sure who she was. I was kind of skeptical. And she said, well, look, let, let me just try to do your health analysis and your, look at your diet and see if I can help you with it. And I was skeptical. I was already sort of healthy. I thought I was very healthy in terms of my diet, as many of us think we are. And thought, well, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a cardiologist. I, I know what I'm doing here, uh, which was sort of the, uh, you know, he who laughs last, last hardest, because I truly did not know how to eat. And she truly changed my life. And I, uh, she taught me a lot about sort of how to eat and what foods are good and bad and why. And that started me on my path to learning about nutrition. So I spent years learning about nutrition and how to eat and how the impact of sugar and the role of meat. And um, I changed everything. And I changed everything so much so I added meditation and yoga and started learning about the counter effects of stress and how we need to balance out the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. And so we learned uh, with all of those things, I got better and I came off my medications uh, almost three years ago now. Mm. Um, I'm stronger than I've ever been. I've done a triathlon since. I do yoga regularly. I run and I don't look back, but I don't forget. I don't forget ever how sick I was. And every day when I see my patients, I practice medicine so differently because of what I've learned. And, you know, I went through this phase of anger where I would blame my poor daughter. And it was really that daughter of mine, you know, and I write that in my book, which is um, she's the one who actually saved me, right? She's the one who actually brought me into the world where I understood the impact of lifestyle and how to fix people. And I'm proud to say now that I'm the physician who takes people off medication and people come to me because they don't want their, ha I'm happy to prescribe medication because I believe in the medicine but if there's room to take people off, I'm not afraid to do it. So that's fascinating. I mean, for the doctor to understand what it's like to be a patient in such a, a visceral level for you, I mean, to wake up thinking, you know, that your liver may have failed or some other horrible side effect. I mean, that, that must have been terrifying because you knew more than your average patient would know. Yes, it was, uh, it was, it was amazing. I mean, I don't know. If you remember in medical school, I remember every time I learned about a new system, I would, if I, we learned about the thyroid, I'd start feeling my thyroid and thinking my thyroid was abnormal. And that's sort of a normal medical student response. But then as you get smarter and smarter, you realize, yes, you're not going to be that person who's going to have, you don't have a problem with your thyroid, you don't have cancer, you're okay. And then all of a sudden, I'm not okay. And all those side effects and risks that you, that you read about, you think about them and you know what could happen. Yeah, my kids were uh, five, three, and ten months when I started medical school. So it wasn't th I that had it; it was they had something. <laughs> so, um, wow. yeah, I remember. Yeah, many worried nights, thinking, "Oh my gosh, they're going to die of cancer or something." But um, so I'm, I'm curious now. So, where are you located now? You're at the University of Florida, is that correct? Yeah. So I, um, I was in practice for a year for. Uh, since I got diagnosed, I guess I, it's been now five years or almost six. 
And I, uh, last October, I made a transition to uh, University of Florida. And that's been a really neat thing for me because uh, they've given me um, control over sort of building a nutrition program in cardiology. And that's why I came here. Um, so that's been really exciting because um, I'm working on it in multiple different areas there here. So University of Florida is in Gainesville, Florida, so north central Florida. And what we're doing here has been exciting. So, you know, I'm trying to work on it, work at bringing nutrition into a cardiology world. And, you know, as part of the ACC Nutrition Committee, we, the American College of Cardiology, so our college, the cardiology, we have it in a group called the American College of Cardiology. And that's sort of our, who writes the guidelines on sort of how we should practice cardiology. And um, we put together a nutrition committee and people maybe that you've seen on your podcast, like Kim Williams and others, Steve DeVries, some of the others sort of plant-based people are on this committee. And what we uh, have did a study on actually, and, and actually is, should be published in the next couple of months, is we looked at sort of the nutrition gaps in education and how cardiologists in general have very little education on nutrition. So that's the irony of it all is that physicians think that patients think that we know so much about nutrition, but we have very little nutrition education. And we sort of go through the statistics of how uh, little education uh, physicians have and how people, most physicians recall and cardiologists recall getting maybe an hour or two hours of nutrition education in their medical school training. And it gets worse as they go to residency and fellowship. And as a result, less than, uh, they spend less than three minutes of their time during a office visit counseling patients on nutrition. And so uh, we're publishing that data in the next couple of months. And when I think about that data, it sort of became my plan of attack. So at University of Florida, we're tackling it at multiple levels. So I'm working with the hospital, for instance, where we're trying to change the menus of our cardiac patients. So many cardiac patients, when they come out after their heart attack, will get a, a beef, a sandwich or a steak and cheese. Um, and so we're shifting more towards a plant-based, at least a mostly plant-based Mediterranean-style diet. And so working with the hospital to change, <coughs> excuse me, the menu has been no small feat, but they're not against it. It's, a, it's more of a lack of education. And so getting them to be more interested in understanding that. So patients, when they come out of the hospital, they'll actually know that this is the food we want them to eat, but they're also going to get a new health and nutrition packet that I'm working on where it's going to say, well, these are the types of foods you should be eating because most patients go out of the hospital and come back in the hospital or go in the hospital and leave the hospital with the, the same amount of information in terms of the nutrition and lifestyle that they had when they walked in, right? So unfortunately, patients aren't armed with any information when they leave. And so we're working on a health packet. So patients, when they leave the cardiac floor, they're going to have information that says, look, you had a heart attack. This is what this means. This is what we want you to eat and give an in-detailed plan of sort of what we want and sort of a plant-based focused meal. So that's what we're doing in the hospital, but we're also working on a couple of clinical trials and studies where we're working on educating the fellows through prevention conference. I've started a prevention conference there and we have them going through like a six month training where we have them go through prevention conference and they have to go through some nutrition modules online. And then we're trying to see if after a six month period, do we change their habits? To cardiology fellows, which are junior, basically, you know, fellows are, um, they're trying, they're going through their training to become cardiologists and going to see if when they go through that training program, 
Does it improve their counseling? Does it improve their education? And the answer is it's going to be it's going to be positive because the fellows keep coming up to me since we started this prevention conference. It's so cool. They're like, I thought of you the other day, Dr. Agarwal. I tried, somebody was telling me that they eat meat all the time, and I've told them to eat seven to eight fruits and vegetables a day. And so I get those kind of comments from the fellows where those sort of conversations just never came up before. And so that's been really exciting. And the third thing that we've sort of gone on the next level, we are also started um, doing, um, I have a prevention clinic and in that prevention clinic, I see patients that are focused on, we, we talk extensively, these are longer visits, we do extensive education on nutrition. Um, they come in, I have a yoga room set up, I do yoga with them, some people I meditate with, and these are things I do personally with them all, and they leave with a very different experience when they come to the cardiologist. So that's amazing, that sounds very exciting, I, I love that. So how did this opportunity come about? Where did you contact them, they contact you? I mean, who? what was the the night is for such change a little bit of a little bit of uh i don't know you know i think you know i've never i've had a very circuitous path in my life truly and sort of where i've been and where i've come from and i um would definitely say that i'm not i would never have seen me where i am now 10 years ago and that's been really neat because the truth is is that um Every every decision and sort of thing that's happened along the way has come along. Initially, when I maybe 10 years ago, I would just make the most practical decision. But after I sort of got sick, I really learned to sort of follow my gut. And I all the decisions that have come along the way have um, have been because I followed my gut. And this one happened when I was actually living in Malaysia last year because I was teaching fourth year medical school. So. In Kuala Lumpur, there was an American-based University of California, San Diego, has a medical school program. They're trying to establish an American-style medical school program. At, at, they were recruited by Malaysia, wanting to sort of go towards a more American style of medica medical school. So I was there running the fourth-year medical school. So I have to tell you, I'm the best doctor I've ever been now because I had to relearn so many things about internal medicine in that year. Um, but while I was there, uh, I was talking to some of my um, friends on Facebook and on email. And uh, one of my friends uh, is a surgeon at University of Florida mentioned that I should come down and take a look. And I thought, I'm not going to Florida. Um, but all the roads led to Florida. So here I am. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So when you say that the doctors are taking online courses, is this something that you guys set up or is this some other resource other physicians could also utilize? Yeah, so good question. So there are a couple of things that we're working on. Um, we're hoping to, um, so the American College of Cardiology is trying to put together a set of webinars for physicians where we um, do a lot of nutrition-based education. Um, but there is a nonprofit that I really like, which is called the Gaples Center. Um, and that's run by a cardiologist that I'm I'm good for, I'm friends with named Steve DeVries. And um, it's a nonprofit and it works on education for medical uh, for medical students and it goes sort of all the way up and they have a bunch of modules that you can um, you can um, buy and um, you can use for your your staff and students. So it's, it's a nice module set. So I've been using those modules as part of this clinical trial. But there are many others. PCRM does, I don't know if PCRM does something for medical school, but a lot of different organizations are putting together um, 
nutrition-based education packets and webinars and modules for physicians and the lay, um, so and for the public. That's fantastic. So it's called Gables or Gaples? Gable with a P, G-A-P-L-E-S. Okay. Gables. Gables Institute. Gables Institute. Okay, Gables Institute. Because, you know, that's one of the things when I transitioned my own diet five years ago, there was nothing that I could find anyway that I could, you know, sign up and say, okay, doctor, this is what you need to know, and this is how to, you know, present it to a patient to have, you know, better success. This is how to bill for it. Um, and, um, yeah, it was a challenge for sure, and it took me a year or so to, to really figure out my own path. Um, that's incredible. I'll have to yeah, look take that a, up. Yeah, yeah, take a look at it. It's a nice uh, group, and um, that nutrition group is a really good group for me because it's all, you know, it's cardiologists that are, you know, that, you know, we have, we all believe in the mission, you know, and not everybody is completely plant-based, but that's okay. I and mean, it's about a conversation. It's about, um, it's about a bunch of people who believe in the mission of education and, and education of nutrition into, and lifestyle. We also focus on uh, lifestyle practices, a lot of meditation and happiness and support and the importance of decreasing stress, which I believe were main reasons that I got sick. I mean, I don't think you know, there's two different things, right? Every, you know, there's genetic predisposition, right? So what that means is, is that we can't change our parents. We get the genes from our parents. But what is it that's going to trigger that gene that we have to then be expressed? And so ultimately, that's the most interesting question, because then, you know, that explains why one person, a father might have it, and the children all might have the gene, but they have different levels of expression. Somebody has it very bad, and somebody has it very little. Why is it that I after having, you know, lived my whole life probably with this genetic predisposition to getting advanced art rheumatoid arthritis, why did I all of a sudden express it after my third child? Well, a lot of physicians will tell you that the hormone changes that occur in pregnancy are often a trigger for rheumatoid arthritis, which so I think that that's very true. But I think that a lot of things that people that we have to appreciate are that there's this imbalance between that stress, stress and we call it the sympathetic nervous system or that fight or flight and that, that parasympathetic, which is that rest and digest. And most of us are living in a state of chronic stress and chronic fight or flight. And so when you're, the problem is, is when there's a tiger and you're running, you're running away from the tiger, you run. And then usually you stop and you sit behind a tree and you rest when the, when, when the threat is gone. But what we do in these, in our day and day in life, we are constantly on, we're constantly running from here to here, we're on our phones, we're always stimulated, there's just, we sleep little, we wear it as a badge of cur- a badge of honor, and we say, oh yeah, you know, we only slept four or five hours, and we still functioned well, or did really well in that test, because we're proud of it, and these are things that, this problem is that we're in that constant state of overstress, and if your iPhone's at 7%, you run, and you go fill that iPhone on the charger, because that battery's going to die, but we haven't given ourselves that ability. We don't allow ourselves to rest and digest. We, we eat while we're walking. We don't sleep. We constantly are on. We weren't, we've forgotten how to sit still. So I don't believe that getting better and healing or getting sick, the counter to getting sick, is about any one thing. I think it's about the whole thing. I think it's about that imbalance between high stress and not allowing yourself to rest and recharge and he- allowing yourself to heal. And that healing has to come in multiple different ways. And I think it's with good plant-based nutrition, good sleep, good healing, uh, sorry, good, 
uh, calming down your stress. These are sort of different ways to put that stress and uh, rest in balance again and often can decrease expression of those genes. You know, I, I think that's very wise and sage advice. And it's, it's especially important nowadays, especially with the television and, you know, they're blasting information, trying to get viewership. So they give you the most stressful news. They, um, and it's just harped on over and over again. I'm curious, what are your most common um, advice points that you give patients to decrease stress? What, what would be some of you, the ones that you found that work really well? Um, so I think each person is different. So I think that I think that we can talk in some broad terms, but I think that sometimes when I do these broad terms, people will say, well, I do that. Well, I've tried that and it doesn't work. Um, and so when you give those sort of broad points, sometimes it sabotages the person because it says, well, I've, I've tried that, I already tried that before, it doesn't work. And then they don't feel like that that's a useful tool. But often I feel like those tools, sometimes they're not, maybe not utilized in exactly you maybe people don't know exactly how to use that tool or maybe it's being used at sort of the wrong time and then also realizing that it's not just about one thing and so i think that that's really key because some people will say well i do do that but i don't think that i would have healed if i hadn't tried multiple different things to get better at sort of at the same time and i know when i am at risk again of getting sick because i know i can feel the difference i can feel my imbalance but um the things I would say sort of in broad terms um, would be uh, don't be afraid to sleep uh, would be one of the things I would say. Um, sleep is um, we should we should be sleeping seven to nine hours a night. Most of us do not. Um, there's nothing to be ashamed of when you sleep that long. That's something you should be proud of. It's restorative. Um, the second thing I would say is um, don't use your electronics right before you go to bed. You shouldn't really use electronics for maybe at least the first the one to two hours before going to bed. That's almost like non-existent in America now. We have all these ringers and dingers that go off on our phones all the time and we sort of can't, and they just distract us and the text messaging and there's the constant. And so uh, often I have to literally pick up my phone and take it away and put it into another room so that I don't listen to it. I turn off all my ringers and I switch it off. And now I'm called by the hospital at night, so I always have to be somewhat near it, but I switch off all the notifications so that I'm not constantly stimulated or wondering what's going on. The third thing I do that I absolutely recommend is the first thing most people do when I ask this question in a talk or so, I'll say, what's the first thing you do after you go to the bathroom when you wake up in the morning? And nine out of 10 people will say they pick up their phone. Um, and so really giving yourself that time in the morning to have that 30 or 40 minutes where you just are just yourself and you're just with the moment and you're, maybe you have your windows open or maybe you're taking a moment to think about your day or, or reflecting on something that troubled you, but that's some time you owe yourself. Um, we owe ourselves that time. Um, so those are some of the things that I recommend. But the fourth thing I do, which is one of the things that I you do a lot in my clinic, is I teach people how to breathe. And I think that learning how to breathe well and learning how to exhale longer than you inhale uh, is an important an important skill and one that most people don't know how to do. Um, and sort of learning how to really effectively breathe so that you can use that breathing then and take it places with you. So I had a patient tell me who suffers from anxiety that she has trouble going to airports and she has trouble going um, out of her home. She has a little bit of agoraphobia where she doesn't like social areas. 
and I, I worked with her and we practiced some breathing techniques and she called me the other day and said, guess what I did? I used your breathing techniques when I was at the airport and I did fine because I do feel that those breathing techniques then carry with you. When I've used those breathing techniques, even when I work with my patients, I come out of the room calmer and cooler. And so when I see the next patient, I'm in a better place because of it. Wow. Do you use the four, seven, eight breathing that Dr. Wield? Yeah. I, you know, I like Andy's uh, four, seven, eight breathing for sure. Some people can't do a four, seven, eight um, because they haven't done it enough. So I often will modify it. And so sometimes I'll just tell people the, the goal is to exhale longer than you inhale or another thing you can do um, is just tell people like it's a, you know, like a three, 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 five or something like that, which tends to be a little bit easier. Um, but you'll be surprised when you tell people that this is what you want to do, what you want people to do. And you have to actually show people and work together because learning how to do those breaths and take that big breath because people want to rush and get that breath in and rush and get that breath out. But remember that the breath is it's about the process of taking that deep breath in, holding that breath, and then taking that full exhale out um, is extremely uh, invaluable, I think. Wonderful. And you mentioned that you do a lot of meditation how how would someone start meditation? What what would be your advice to help someone go into that world? Because I, I certainly believe that's valuable. But, you know, some people might be a little bit intimidated by the whole point of just sitting or they don't know what to do. What What do you say? Yeah, I think a lot of people are intimidated. I think when you think of the word meditation, people think of like somebody sitting on top of a mountain wearing like sort of, you know, priestly garbs and um, has nothing around. Or you think of those old koans where uh, people all of a sudden get enlightened and that's what people imagine when they think of meditation. But right. I remind people that meditation is something that you can do in the moment and it's not about, um, it's about sort of it's sometimes it's just about learning how to breathe and acknowledging that these random thoughts like the target list are going to come into your mind. Um, but that you acknowledge the thought and don't say, Oh my God, see, I can't meditate because I thought of the target list and not to panic. And just to say, you know, I see that I have a target list. I need to go to target, but I don't need to worry about that right now. And I'm going to push that away. Um, and so those sort of kind, those sort of um, learning sort of to acknowledge those thoughts that come into your head and then sort of saying, well, oh gosh, I don't need to think about that right now. I'm worrying about my breath or thinking about my breath. That really helps people. Um, and so, you know, there are apps available like Headspace, which is a nice app online, but there are loads of apps on your phones and um, that you can use. Even Oprah Winfrey did a 21 day meditation with Deepak Chopra. That was nice. Um, but I often, I, you know, I, I do often feel that some of those, those apps um, do create a level of confusion as well. And so sometimes just the sort of basics of learning to kind of switch off everything, close it off, um, put off your electronics and sitting in a quiet room and just focusing on your breath is a great way to start meditation. We actually have started a meditation yoga class in the evenings at our hospital in my clinic. So on Tuesday nights, people come in uh, to the clinic and it's outside. We have mats set up and we have drinks and we have a uh, you know we have water and we have uh, it smells good and it feels good and you walk in and just people take a sigh of relief and we just do a little bit of yoga and meditation and everybody walks out of the ring like ah oh, just feels so good and it's just we don't take time for that so I talk a lot about that in my book uh, finding balance well and that's a great segue into finding balance so tell us about your book um so I wrote that book 
I debated about that book a lot um, because somebody had encouraged me to write it. And I decided that it was something I needed to do because of how much I blamed my third child for getting sick and how of a dark place I was in. And so I wrote that book really as a tribute to that, uh, to my third child. And um, because she, um, she really did make me realize it was only because of her that I was able to learn really how to heal people and to heal myself. And so um, that book is about sort of how I got sick. And uh, I wrote it with my co-author, Dr. Jyoti Rao, who's an internal medicine doctor. And um, we talk a lot about sort of how that it's not about one thing because people try so hard to do just the diet or just they do one or, or they just do focus on their stress or they do a lot of exercise, but then they eat poorly. Um, and so we talk sort of about how it's, it's all about that collective and that there's multiple things that trigger that imbalance. And then we sort of talk about and we give practical tools on sort of how to bring that the body back in balance. And there are a lot of great, more intelligent than I, uh, researchers doing incredible research on the concept of in gut inflammation and the concept of stress and how that triggers inflammation in the gut and changes the flora. I mean, there's just incredible stuff going on to explain the relationships between sort of how you feel and how your gut is and, and you can tie in how your food is and how the, how your, uh, that changes the bacteria in your gut and how that triggers inflammation. And so there's so much exciting stuff going on in terms of medicine, in terms of understanding that. And a lot of the data that is out there, I tried to put into that book. So parts of it are a bit scientific, um, but I wanted it, I wanted people to know that it's it's real stuff. It's not quackery. And and uh, you know what's been nice is that I have had some physicians, where, you know, a bunch of physicians read it, and um, they you know they say, you know what, this I get this. You know, we need more information on this, and that that's been a neat uh, a neat thing for me. So in the book, it talks about 10 prescriptions of health. Can you give us a few of those, what those might be, or maybe ones that uh, that come to mind that you think someone can actually, you know, after done listening to this podcast, can maybe start implementing in their lives? Sure. So one of the um, uh, big ones I would say is you should eat seven to eight fruits and vegetables a day. Um, that's not, uh, that's servings of fruits and vegetables. So... Um, a serving, which is what a lot of people don't know, a serving is actually a baseball-sized fruit or a cup of raw vegetables or a half a cup of cooked vegetables. So that's um, a serving. And so when I tell people that, most people kind of like, oh, my God, that's way too much. But then when you start thinking about it, like, oh, well, you know, you actually should be eating, which would be a recommendation number two, is that you should be eating about six times a day. Um, and these meals should be not large meals. They should be small meals throughout the day. And if you eat small meals throughout the day and some of those meals, if you think about them, are actually fruits and vegetables and you think about how to add them into each of those six meals, it's actually not hard at all to get uh, seven to eight fruits and vegetables a day. Um, third thing I guess I would say is that uh, learning how to turn off your electronics at least an hour before bed uh, is a big one. Uh, four, I would say, is learning how to breathe and, you know, spending time with a meditation app or going to a good yoga class or something that where they focus on the breath. It's really invaluable. I've been doing yoga since I was in meditation since I was in college, and I uh, got so much better at it after I got sick for sure. But um, I've sort of always valued the, imp the importance of, of these 
practices. And then I would say maybe as a fifth thing is I would say that um, just move, uh, move, move your tush, you know, and so um, there's lots of data to show that even if you move an extra 2,000 steps a day, you can impact your overall health. And so if you used to exercise, walk and do 2,000 steps and you just make it 4,000, there's a significant improvement in your overall health. So these are all, you know, good things. And so how do you do that? Well, you know, you can do that by simple things like um, going for walks in your neighborhood. It doesn't have to go to a fancy gym, spend money on a gym membership. You just go for a walk. And people who have arthritis, uh, I often recommend pool walking. Um, pool walking is a great exercise. Um, water aerobics, those kind of activities. And then also, I think, especially in my seniors, I recommend a lot of yoga. And those are sort of really good ways to keep yourself strong. But as we age, we have a lot of difficulty with core strength and imbalance and weakness in our upper upper arms. And that's what tributes us to fall. There's a lot of seniors who fall and break their hips. And that's an anxiety for a lot of people is their balance. But I work with a lot of seniors in my yoga classes and they keep coming back and they say, you know what, I just feel like I'm stronger. And they're so thankful that they have more strength in their upper body and they work better and they're more, they walk better and they're more agile. That's fantastic. So you said you had an integrative um, medicine fellowship. Was this before you got sick? It was, yeah. I did that as part of, um, and that's how I met Andy Watt. Oh, okay. And did they not speak to the diet or anything like that? I mean, what, what was it that you didn't maybe correlate in yourself? Do you, I mean, I'm just curious how yeah, you learned yeah, about yeah. it. So, yeah, it's very, it was very, uh, it's definitely more focused on, so I went back and I gave some talks at the Integrative Center last, this last summer or last fall, I guess it was November. And, um, you know, nutrition is not their biggest focus. They focus more on sort of the mind-body connection, um, through relaxation, they talk a lot about supplements and herbals, which are all, you know, definitely, you know, have a potential role, but uh, nutrition is not as big of a focus for them. And uh, it's just different people and different um, programs focus on different things. And I think they're trying to transition more towards an understanding of diet. But I think uh, most of my nutrition education happened um, um, after. And now when phys when patients come to see you, do they know what you do? I mean, are they referred to you specifically for alternatives to, you know, being started on medications and stents? Or is it kind of a surprise when you mention things? I'm just curious there. Yeah, yeah. So, no, some people, I have a prevention clinic one day a week that um, people come to uh, and they know that they're going to get a different experience. They come often prepared to do um, relaxation techniques or yoga, and they come in relaxed clothes because they're advised to. And then they have to go through an intensive packet. I have them do an extensive questionnaire about sort of lifestyle and when they come in. I do have a general clinic as well, but in that general clinic, these are patients that didn't necessarily come for sort of a, the preventative aspect, but I bring it up and they're blown away and they often tell me, gosh, you know, I've asked for years for a physician to teach me about nutrition. I thank you so much for bringing us up. I didn't really understand how to do this. Um, and so I, I, I incorporate it into every clinic visit. And um, yeah, I spend, uh, I would spend, I, I would say half of the, half of my clinic visits these days are, are focused on, um, on nutrition and lifestyle. It's a, it's my top priority. Do you have help like a nutritionist or a dietitian or nursing staff that help you? I, I have some help, um, not as much as I need. 
um, for sure. It's sort of a, the academics problem where you often don't, um, uh, resources are hard to come by. Um, but I do okay, and I, I like to do a lot of it myself because I uh, I like to sort of see what people are able to do. I understand a lot for people. I, I, spend a, I find out a lot about people when I spend time with them in the yoga room. A lot of emotions come up. There's tears sometimes. There's mm. I can see their balance. So I do do a lot of it myself because I do think it's super important, at least for the first couple times, to really get to know people and understand them. So I do it mostly at that point. But, you know, in the future, um, I hope to have sort of a more balanced clinic with more help. But, you know, we're working towards it. That's a great um I, I felt the same way. I really wanted to be the one involved with the patients for sure and be the kind of the, not only witness it, but just be kind of the, the coach to help them move along in the right direction. It's a lot of fun. So, Yeah, great. I, I love that. You're, you're doing great things over on your side of Florida as well. Yeah, on the south side. Yeah, we're doing it's some pretty cool stuff. I mean, I think we're literally saving lives, and it's it's been a wonderful opportunity um, to grow and work with Dr. Furman for sure. Great. I, awesome. I, yeah, thank you. Um, so when people want to reach out to you, where can they find you um, in social media or on the Internet? Yeah, so um, I have um, a website. It's Dr. Monica Agarwal. That's A-G-G-A-R-W-A-L, so drmonicaagarwal.com. And I have a Facebook page, which I'm much better at Facebook paging um, thoughts and things I've seen along the way or interesting things as they go Then I'm at. Um, but I use the book, um, the website and Facebook and the book is available on the website and on Amazon. Cool. And so I'll make sure and put those in the show notes, any links to both of those, um, your websites and the Facebook and then also the book as well. But you know Great. what? Yeah, definitely. I, I, at the, I think your story is amazing and it's just, um, you're very concise in sharing it, and that's that's been fantastic. But I, you know, I always like to do a few things at the end of the podcast. And one is, if you had one final bit of advice for anybody um, listening, what would that be? And then second, I like to just give acknowledgement to the to the who I'm interviewing because honestly, you know, doctors especially, I think. You do so much, and then you just you never kind of get to see. Sometimes you do. Like, I guess maybe in cardiology, you know, you can go in and put a stint in, and you see immediate relief and or, or save a life. Like you're in the ER, so you get that. Like, oh wow, I did this. Being over, you know, family practice or internal medicine, or if you're doing more preventive work, you don't ever get to see maybe the effects that you have. You know, you may have changed someone's life, but you don't see the ripple effect. So I just always like to acknowledge people and say, you know, thank you for what you're doing and. You know, thank you for all those who maybe not be able to say thank you. Um, it's nice. it's a pretty cool thing that you're doing. And uh, so, what would be that one bit of advice that you yeah, would no, like to no, share? thank you. That's that's very nice for sure. Yeah. Um, I would say that um, I would say that the um, one thing I would say is that uh, one thing I say to myself actually when I finish yoga practice or when I finish a day, sometimes I say to myself, accept what your body has to give. Um, and then push it further. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, is that you never, you're not always perfect and you're not always going to be able to do everything and allow yourself that time to recover and heal and, and take time for yourself and accept that it's not always, you can't always do that step perfectly or you didn't get as far in your run and that it's okay. 
And so I always say to myself, accept what your body has to give. But then I also say, push it further. And what I mean by that is don't, don't be afraid to also challenge yourself. Um, because if we don't challenge ourselves to get stronger, um, if we don't challenge ourselves to get stronger, then we will, um, then we, we also, we can also get stuck in a rut. And so I do think that those are really important things and probably the way words of words of advice and things that I've used in my day to day. That, that's wonderful. And I think that even goes beyond physical too, you know, um, stretching our minds and mental growth and learning consistently. And, uh, I always like to say, if I'm not, if I'm not growing, I'm dying. So, um, keep moving right. forward. So, Wow, this was a great interview, and thank you so much, Dr. Agarwal, for joining my podcast, and I'm sure everyone here will enjoy listening and take forward in all the advice that you brought to us. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was great talking to you.